If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, the text is printed in the bulletin for you also on the next page of the, uh, the bulletin. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to this, uh, <clears throat> even though it's, it's just about the darkest prayer in the Bible that you, you, that you could find in the Scriptures. Um, unlike other laments in the Psalms, there's no positive upswing at the end. Uh, of Psalm 88. It does not end on a note of praise. Uh, it does not end on a note of confidence, where the psalmist has been lamenting the whole time, wondering, and then finally says something like, uh, no, I know you're there, and I know you're hearing me, and I know things are going to be okay. It doesn't end that way. Uh, it doesn't end on a note of hope. It just ends with the singer crying out in the darkness, lamenting the darkness, and then it's over. Um, somewhat abruptly. Some people with a rosy view of life might be embarrassed by a prayer like this, might not know what to do with a prayer like this. Some might be afraid to pray this prayer. Some might call this prayer disrespectful to God. Some might even call this prayer blasphemous. But this, uh, this prayer, this dark prayer, is God's very word. He doesn't just allow this prayer to exist. He ordains it, and it's in the Scriptures. It's so good to have this psalm because, uh, <clears throat> because ultimately it means that when your life crashes down and you're feeling something like what this, this psalmist, this singer is feeling, your life crashes down and you find yourself all alone in your despair, you have something to say to God. You have something to say to God. He's given you something to say to Him in the darkness. And this is a real gift. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, so many times we don't know what to pray, how to pray, why to pray. But we know that as we come to, uh, to your word, we have to pray and we have to ask you for help. Help us to understand this. Help us to pray this way. Help us to see this prayer as a way for us to relate to you. In Christ, we pray this in his name. Amen. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonath, a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? 
Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're familiar with the scriptures, uh, it's, I think it's hard not to think of that troubled soul, uh, Job, when you read this psalm. Job was that good man, that holy man, that righteous man that, uh, that God had prospered through, his, through all his life, whose life came to ruin ultimately at the hand of God himself. Right, that's what it says in Job right there in the first couple chapters. You get it all over the place that, that Yahweh was the one who brought Job's life to ruin, ultimately. The one true God. Yahweh was the one who brought Job to Satan's attention in the first place. Said to Satan, hey, check Job out. Turn your attention to him for a minute. Satan accused Job of, um, yeah, he's a good man. Faithful, right? Fears you, serves you. But he accused him of being a fair-weather worshiper of Yahweh, saying that he only feared and served God because God had made his life pleasant, given him all nice circumstances. Of course, anybody in that situation would fear God and serve God. So Satan told God, make Job's life a living hell and then let's see what happens. And so the living God says, okay. Yahweh let the destroyer loose in Job's life. That's a hard message to receive, but it's right there. It's clear as day. Job's suffering ultimately came from the hand of God himself. Job would not have suffered if God had not allowed it, ordained it, brought it about. In wave after wave of tragedy and assault, Job lost all his great wealth, lost all his faithful servants, he lost his precious children. And what was his response? He faithfully bore witness, he faithfully confessed, at the end of chapter 1, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So he attributed his suffering to God. And the word of God said it was not sinful for him to do that. He didn't sin when he attributed his suffering to God. <clears throat> so um, not seeing the outcome that he had predicted or wanted, Satan continued. He asked to be able to persecute Job further. And God said, okay, gave him the go ahead. Just don't kill him. Have your way with him. So Job's very health and every last comfort were removed from him, and he sat in ashes, scraping his sores with broken pottery to get some relief, I guess. Even Job's own wife, his most intimate companion in all the world, suggested that he give up on God, 
Stop being faithful to this God. Curse God and die. It would be better if you did that. <clears throat> but Job rebuked her, and he said in, at the end of uh, chapter 2, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not also receive evil? Evil, and, and, uh, and in all this, it says again, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't say the wrong thing. He didn't say something blasphemous. So again, he attributed his suffering ultimately to God. And the biblical narrative testifies that it was a true confession for him to do that. It was a true confession. If you go home and read further in Job, I actually recommend taking it all at once, spending an hour or so, just read the whole book in its entirety. But if you read the next chapter, chapter 3, you'll find it full of the same themes and language that we find in Psalm 88. It's identical stuff, really. Job uh, being written much earlier than the psalm. Job is lamenting the terrible things, not just that are happening to him, the terrible things that God has done to him. Job's lamenting that. And Psalm 88 could easily be, be the prayer of Job's troubled soul, the prayer of the righteous man, the faithful man who's ruined by God, who remains faithful. He remains faithful even as he laments what God has done to him, where it seems like God's not being faithful to him, but he remains faithful and says what is right and true. But uh, there was a troubled soul more righteous even, even than Job, brought to greater ruin by God's wrath, brought to absolute ruin, who has prayed this prayer to its utmost depths, remained faithful all the way. That good man was Jesus, perfect in his devotion to God, absolutely perfect, from whom the riches of heaven itself were all taken, his beloved friends fleeing from his side, shunning him publicly, betraying him, every comfort removed from him as he was stripped bare and beaten and crucified, publicly humiliated and killed. Jesus was assaulted more than any other person who's ever lived. Jesus lost more than any other person has ever lost. Jesus found himself more alone than anyone else could even imagine. And all along the way, he attributed his suffering to the will and the plan of his good father. And in doing so, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. When he said, I'm going to the cross, that's God's will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, as we read in Isaiah 53. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He went down to the pit, the grave, all language that you find in Psalm 88. He went down to the place where the dead are forgotten. And God was the one who put him there, ultimately. Jesus was not embarrassed by that reality. He was not afraid to confess that. He told anybody who would listen. He did not blaspheme when he cried out in prayer, asking why God had forsaken him. He didn't blaspheme. Even when God made him a horror to his companions, even when God's wrath laid heavy upon him, even when God's dreadful assaults destroyed him utterly, Jesus remained faithful to God. He was God-forsaken, but he was faithful to the end. 
And that's something that can't be said of anybody, not even righteous Job. Jesus was no fair-weather worshiper. He, he was only, uh, only faithful throughout his whole life, not just when life was pleasant, but even at the worst that anybody's ever seen. Jesus prayed in the dark. He prayed in the dark. And do you know what that means? It means that, for one thing, it means that you can be assured that Psalm 88 is a fully authorized prayer, Jesus tested, Jesus approved, and you can pray it. When you're in the dark and it seems like God is not answering your prayers, you've been praying all day long, day and night, and it feels like God is not answering your prayers, you should feel no qualms about praying this way to God and saying, you did this to me, why? You are welcome to direct your complaints to God. You're instructed to direct your complaints to God. And you can allow yourself... I don't know how else to say it other than that. You can allow yourself that, that holy discomfort and all the terrible awkwardness of not hearing back from God on that right away. You did this to me. Why did you do this to me? And then silence, maybe? It's an amazing grace that God would allow us, even invite us or command us to talk to him this way. God is not embarrassed to be addressed with this prayer. You might think if you have a rosy view of life and that everybody should just be all joyful all the time, you might think that, that God would be embarrassed to be addressed this way. No, you need to have all joy, joyful prayers all the time. But he's not embarrassed to be addressed this way. He's not ashamed of the state of our relationship when we're praying this way. What it might say about him that his people would pray this way. God's not worried that this prayer reflects poorly on him. In fact, he has said that this psalm reveals him. It reveals him as he truly is. And it reveals the way that our relationship with him really is, really is sometimes. It reveals what it looks like to be a, a, a Christian, a follower of Christ, a follower of God, in relationship with God. It's... It's what it looks like right here, Psalm 88. God's not ashamed of that. He's not embarrassed by that. This doesn't, uh, it's, it's no weak witness or it's no faithless testimony to others when you pray this way or you talk this way. In fact, it's a wonderful testimony when you pray this way because at the end of the day, you're, you're still praying, aren't you? You're continuing to pray. The atheist with a troubled soul will say, I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering like this. The Christian with a troubled soul will say, God, hear my prayer. Why have you done this to me? The atheist won't pray Psalm 88. He'll spout his bitter philosophy of life to anyone who will listen. The Christian with a troubled soul will pray, even to the God that he thinks isn't listening. He may not understand, we may not like it, but we'll pray. We'll go to God in the dark, because God has given us something to say to him in the dark. It's a real gift. It's a real gift. So you can pray this prayer. Here's the second gift of knowing 
this prayer as fully authorized by Jesus. You can take comfort in the gospel truth that you're not alone. You're not alone, even if that's exactly what it feels like. Obviously, the singer of this psalm feels alone, forsaken by God and abandoned by everybody, even his beloved, his closest friends, his companions. Feels utterly alone. But when you know this prayer as authorized by Jesus, and you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know that you're not alone, even if it feels that way. If you don't isolate this psalm, I mean, if you take this psalm just by itself, cut it out of the rest of the scriptures and just take this psalm, it feels like uh, this is just despairing and um, that's all you have. But if you don't isolate the psalm from the rest of the scriptures, you see it in light of the life and death of Jesus Christ, then you see that God himself knows what it means to be God-forsaken. That, that deeply troubling thing to our souls, this God-forsakenness that is lamented in Psalm 88, God knows exactly what that feels like. If Jesus prayed this prayer, and he really prayed it better than anyone, then you know that Jesus can relate to you when you pray this prayer. You know that. And you know what that means? It means that God can relate to you when you pray this prayer because Jesus is God. God in the flesh. God in the flesh praying the prayer of the God forsaken. God knows what it's like to be a human suffering in the dark. He has wept so that he can weep with those who weep. If you're depressed, if you're despairing, If you're hopeless, Jesus knows what that's like. God knows what that's like. You're not alone. If you're abandoned, feeling desperately lonely, Jesus can relate. God can relate. If you're overwhelmed by all God's waves and his assaults destroy you, surrounding you like a flood all day long, and if you lie, forgotten, dead, in the grave, even then you're not alone. You're never really alone. You're in good company because Jesus has gone into all those places before you in order to meet you there when you arrive. He went all the way into the land of oblivion to assure you that you'll never be forgotten by God. He went all the way into the outer darkness of God-forsakenness to assure you that God will never leave you nor forsake you, the great promise that comes from Jesus' own lips. There's nowhere that you can go to be utterly alone. Even if you feel that way and pray this psalm feeling so alone, there's nowhere you can go to be utterly alone because Jesus is always there. Psalm 139 says, we'll look at that um, some, some weeks from now, I don't even know, months, maybe years, I don't know. Um, Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. God has gone into all the God-forsaken places to meet you there, to, to be there for you when you arrive. And that brings us... Um, to the third gift of knowing this psalm, especially as it's prayed by Jesus. 
God doesn't just comfort us with the knowledge that he can relate to us. It's so nice, it's so unique to Christianity to say, we have a God who can actually relate to us in all of our our misery, all of our suffering, all the temptations that we face in this life. God can relate to us. We have the comfort of knowing that. But he doesn't just comfort us with the knowledge that he can relate to us. He honors us with the privilege of knowing him and being able to relate to him. Being able to know what it's like for him to be him. When you suffer, and when you pray this way, you know something of what it's like to be Jesus. That's to be God in the flesh. To be God himself in the flesh. You know something of what it's like when you pray this prayer, when you suffer like he did. Suffering and praying. When you suffer the pain of your beloved or your friends or your companions being uh, absent being against you, just being no real help to you in times of suffering, like Job's friends. God is granting you the honor of knowing what it's like to be Him. This is what it's like to be Him. It's the humblest condescension on God's part to make that possible, to make it possible for you to know what it's like to be Him. And it's the highest privilege for you to be able to look at Jesus in his suffering, to know how he feels, to be able actually to empathize, have compassion for him and relate to him, and to know what it's like for God to be the God that he is in Jesus Christ. He has wept. He has wept so that you may weep with him who weeps. It's, uh, it's something like an injured veteran, like a war hero, returning to his family after his leg was blown off in combat, and his little toddler skins her knee, which is like the end of the world for a little toddler, right? And her father picks her up and says, see, baby girl, your leg hurts just like daddy's leg was hurt. That's, that's no patronizing, mocking condescension. That father is opening up his life to his little girl, sharing an intimate, vulnerable moment with her, and she will love him and know him better for it. And if you pray this psalm in the name of Jesus Christ, even though there's really a vast difference in measure between our sufferings and his sufferings, God is opening up his life to you. He's sharing his experiences with you, letting you pray as he himself has prayed so that you can know his pain and be able to relate to him. If God were a human being relating to God, it would look exactly like Jesus praying this prayer sometimes. And when you pray this prayer, Psalm 88, in Jesus' name, you're sharing in the divine knowledge of God himself. Like it or not, this is probably the best answer to the deepest question of the psalm. Why have you done this to me? That's that's the best answer. It isn't more holy to go without an answer to that question. It isn't more genuine suffering to go without an answer ultimately to that question. Why? Why is this happening? Why have you done this? 
God has arranged for your sufferings. And he's given you something to say to him in the dark in order that you can connect with him there. Even though it's the dark. In order to give you more of himself, in order to make you know him and relate to him, even if that comes in a form that you have a really hard time recognizing. It's so hard for us to recognize that that's what God is doing when it feels like he's absent and silent and forsaken us. But that's the point of the book of Job. The whole book, God arranged all Job's sufferings. He invited all Job's laments, all of his wrestlings, in order to do Job the honor of a conversation. God shows up and has a conversation with Job. And Job could learn more about God and have a relationship with him. For the Christian, there's no greater privilege than coming to know Jesus by sharing in sufferings like his. Unless, of course, you're talking about the fourth gift of this psalm, uh, which is coming to know Jesus, not just by sharing in his sufferings, but sharing in his resurrection. Uh, even though the psalm is prayed in the dark, you've got the light creeping in at the edges. There's some hopeful stuff happening in this psalm, this psalm is no excuse to stay in your depression always and forever. Because the whole Bible says that there's a new dawn coming. And it's even hinted at here, I think in maybe a strange way, the singer of the psalm spends a lot of time asking, right in the middle, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the bottomless pit in Abaddon? Are your wonders made known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He's almost being antagonistic to God with these rhetorical questions. On the face of it, it's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is no. No, the dead don't rise up to praise you. So why do you let us die? But there's a deeper answer, and the answer, again, is fully authorized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do the dead rise up to praise God? Well, Job's life was restored double. Do the dead rise up to praise God? The resurrection of Jesus Christ says the real answer is yes. Yes. This psalm might end in darkness. Your whole earthly life might be full of darkness, beginning to end, like it is expressed in this psalm. But your story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there because a new day is coming when sorrows and sighing will flee away and you will know God, not just as the crucified Lord knows God. You'll know God as the risen Lord Jesus knows God. That's the true interest of someone who prays. The true interest of someone who prays, especially prays this psalm, is to see the face of God. You see it in verse 14. Why have you hidden your face from me? That's the thing I want most is to see your face. Christians don't just want pleasant circumstances. All of life is arranged very nicely and comfortably. That's not what we want. That's not ultimately what we want. We want God. We want to know God, even as the risen Lord Jesus knows God. That's what we want ultimately. And that will require sharing not only in suffering like his and a death like his 
but it will require also sharing in his resurrection, which is guaranteed to us in the gospel. It's guaranteed. You may have a hard time conceiving it. You may be in a place right now where you're barely able to believe that. But it doesn't matter what kind of suffering you're enduring. God is with you. might not feel that way. God is with you. He has given you something to say to him in the dark. It's pretty dark. But he's given you something to say. And he gives you the freedom really to pray it. God knows what you're going through. He can relate. In fact, he's giving you a taste of what it's like to be Jesus. Because he loves you. Because he wants you to know him as he really is. And to be like him as he really is. And someday, maybe soon, the God of your salvation will give you new eyes to see him just like the risen Lord Jesus sees him. And then there will be no more praying in the dark. And that day is coming. And that's good news. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful that you've given us your spirit and your word so that we can pray in your name. These things are uh, terrible things. Who wants to pray this way? Who wants to be in, in a life like this? Well, um, well, we want to know you. So we pray that you would have your way with us, that you would do whatever it takes uh, in our lives to bring us to a, a greater and a deeper and a truer knowledge of yourself that you would give us your own knowledge of God. And we know that that will take us through dark places, but we know it won't end there. We pray that you would give us uh, faith, uh, the assurance of faith that enables us to pray a psalm like this, uh, to really even let loose with a psalm like this, and yet not to grieve as those who have no hope, not just to be bitter, not just to complain, but to look forward to that resurrection, uh, that new morning, that new dawn that uh, you have promised, you've guaranteed that you've even demonstrated in your own resurrection, even though um, we can hardly conceive of it and barely believe it. We pray that you would sustain us with the hope of the resurrection, seeing God face to face. We pray this in your name. Amen.